Thanks for joining us. I'm Alan Burke, a landscape architect here in the Puget Sound region, and you are listening to the Green Meridian Podcast. In my time in business, I've consulted with thousands of residential clients. Last year, I completed almost 50 custom design build projects with my team, and our company finished over 120 jobs. When I meet with a prospective customer, I know that I have to be very careful about how I'm approaching our newly developing relationship. Part of the, you know, the fascinating nuance of the work is to try to suss out the interrelationship and of particular interest is how the client personally is experiencing our evolving interactions. How with a married couple's decision-making processes, the couple's power dynamic works. How they, of course, make budget decisions and needless to say, the nature of the work they want to have done, the budget and expected timeline. A typical married couple relationship might have one spouse expressing visual ideas and desires and the other one more concerned about the budget and the contract. It's not uncommon to find that one of the parties recedes into the background or never shows up at all until later. The danger here is, of course, that the formerly quiet spouse comes out of the woodwork at a later date and starts to pay attention after unalterable decisions have been made. This can result in all kinds of problems and points to the necessity of having a really good contract and a good record of approvals for substitutions and extra work. In thinking about this, I was drawn to an article that I read a number of months ago that I thought was very to the point and enlightening. The article by Blair Enns is in his Win Without Pitching manifesto titled The Polite Battle for Control. I think this is a good way to put it. I'm not particularly a big fan of business books or sales pitch techniques really, but occasionally I come upon a well-articulated way of thinking that resonates with the work that I'm doing. I had never really thought about the initial part of the sales cycle the way that Enns describes it, but his outline is a good orientation to take when you think about your sales and consulting approach. In your work, you're trying to assert your expertise and your ability to make creative and conscientious on-budget decisions for the client. And in some cases, you may find yourself talking a client off the ledge about constructing an unbuildable idea, or you might have the opportunity to keep them from making a bad decision about an off-budget item that be that's being considered. In some cases, it has to do with reaffirming the proper use of plant materials, despite the fact that the client wants a maidenhair fern planted out in the full sun in August. Or in other cases, it might have to do with the size or positioning of an element in the landscape or spending excess amounts of the budget on an unnecessary item. Let's quickly go through the 20 points that Blair Enns makes here in the polite battle for control. Number one, for you to deliver the best possible results for your client, you must be allowed to control the engagement. The best clients will contribute valuable direction and insight, but the highest certainty of a positive outcome comes from these engagements you are allowed to lead. Number two, the question of whether it will be you or your client that controls the engagement is answered within the buying cycle. It's here, before you are hired, that roles are assigned. 
Number three, to control the engagement, therefore, you must carve out the leadership role early within the buying cycle. It's difficult to switch from playing the good soldier before you're hired, diligently following the orders of the RFP and doing as you're asked by the procurement folks and the gatekeepers, to playing the commander once hired. Roles are not easily changed once established. Control is won or lost early. Number four, you cannot take control unilaterally. The prospect, the prospect must let you. He or she must ultimately decide that it is in their best interest to follow your lead. Number five, for you to be allowed to lead, you must possess credibility. Number six, you may have credibility in the eyes of the prospect before he or she reaches out to you, or you may be starting from a position of zero credibility when you reach out to them. Regardless, you must build credibility quickly and maintain it vigilantly once it's built. Number seven, credibility begins with the word no. If you do not say no, your yes has no value. Getting the prospect to say yes is more likely when you begin with no. As early as possible, look for the reasons why an engagement with your prospect might not make sense. Eight, many of the accepted protocols of selling do not apply to you. In places where others say advance, you must retreat and demonstrate selectivity. You must sell leadership differently than your neighbor sells widgets. Unlike a transactional sale for you, the close is just the beginning. How you sell will ultimately shape what it is you are able to deliver. Number nine, the unqualified pursuit of a meeting, calling or emailing the prospect with a request for a meeting without first endeavoring to determine a fit, impairs credibility, almost irreparably. The idea that two busy parties should invest in a face-to-face -face meeting without first having a probing discussion of one's need and the other's expertise is ludicrous. To request this is absurd. Number 10, meetings obtained in such a manner are auditions with significant sales resistance built in and little credibility for you, the seller. Number 11, stars never addition. Number 12, it is never the objective of your telephone introduction to obtain a meeting. Your objective is to introduce and determine a fit. But a meeting is sometimes a logical outcome. When the prospect feels like a meeting, hunters prey, credibility is lost. Number 13, I don't get this, but the 13th point never made sense and was deleted, or perhaps I'm just superstitious and like the 13th floor of a building, it's here. It's just called 14. Even I am not certain. Number 14, it may seem counterintuitive, but it's easier to sell the services of your firm when you quit selling altogether and you start selectively looking for someone to help. Then look for reasons why an engagement might not work. Selectivity builds credibility, which allows for control. Number 15, the prospect that values your enthusiasm more than your expertise or your credibility makes the worst type of client. Leave them as your gift to your competition. You do not need every client. Replace quantity with quality and pursue a small number of high quality new clients every year. Be careful about who you let in. Number 16, the above 15 points can be summarized as the polite battle for control. Not control for control's sake. Not control for reasons of pride, malice, or fear. Just the control that you need to deliver the highest certainty of a high-quality outcome for your client. Number 17. Control does not mean unilateral decision-making, ultimate authority, or superiority of place. The consequences of gaining control should never include the sacrifice of collaboration or mutual respect. Winning the polite battle for control simply means earning the place of practitioner in the patient-practitioner relationship. 18. You were never meant to win every battle. You will lose more, perhaps far more, than you will win. 
But again, the polite battle for control is won or lost early. Losing early is inexpensive and manageable, while losing late can be financially and motivationally debilitating. Your willingness to fight and lose many polite battles early will leave you with only the clients for whom you can do your best work. Number 19, there is no rainmaker. If you learn to deprogram yourself from the historical ways and you learn to win this polite battle for control, then you will no longer want a mythological creature to help build and save your firm. Number 20, remember that the battle must always be a polite one. Be respectful. It's okay to also have fun. In practice, as he said, I think it's important to set these expectations early and direct how you're going to work together to make decisions. This is something that's relatively simple to do, but involves a respectful articulation of the ideas that you will be talking about. In any instance, it's important to have well put together collateral materials to be able to display your credibility through good reviews and have a moderate semblance of work that you can show the client so as to establish your bona fides. Initially, I spend a few minutes trying to figure out what the dynamic is if I'm meeting with both parties. I try to spend a bit of time trying to determine the power dynamic with the couple. This might involve understanding the primary individual, that is usually the person that made the inquiry. Often, this is the female of the pair, according to our CRM anyway, and she's the one that is focusing on the visual aesthetic of the idea. The other partner, in some cases, being more tied to the budget and the pragmatic decisions around the construction. Again, this is not always the case. At the same time, it's going to be important to set the standard for how you're proceeding through the consultation. That is, how long the process is going to take and what the deliverables might be. This might be, in its simplest sense, a one-hour consultation with ideas. Or in a more comprehensive example, it might involve the creation of a full estimate and a submitted contract for a design. Needless to say, it's important to establish an arrangement of trust. The client needs to feel that they can trust you to not only be creative and come up with ideas that they would not have come up with on their own, but also to be knowledgeable about materials and how the construction will go together. Material staging and decision-making around the selections, the equipment needed, and of course the investment that will be, be made by the client are critical aspects of the discussion. When talking about ideas, I think one of the important things to do is to very carefully find a friendly area of disagreement. One way to do this is to talk the client out of doing something that they might have initially considered as a cost-saving measure or something like that. If you can set the tone around that, you can more easily define how the discussion will be framed going forward. That's not to say that the discussion is defined by disagreement, but more in that the client trusts that you will be offering up clear ideas based upon your professional abilities. Oftentimes, this might be a plant that isn't wanted, instead being saved or a selection of a more cost-effective stone material, something like that. Establishing your professional emotional edge is a very important consideration as something is going to go wrong during the construction of course in the subsequent time frame, and there may be a misaligned expectation between the parties around the planning or the overall layout. Asserting your control matters because you're going to want to set a tone that can carry throughout the project. In some cases, design-build designers are continuing in some project management role, and as such, they need to be in control of the actual engagement of the project. With this in mind, it's important to set that tone to the conversation early. There is, of course, a very fine line between asserting professional control of the overall management of the work and a certain form of tone-deaf arrogance that might be displayed. This is, of course, something to be avoided. It's 
important to be able to respectfully argue in an articulate way about your work clearly, because in some cases, a designer will be managing the project on an ongoing basis and need to flex about an unanticipated extra cost, a necessary substitution of materials, or the strong arming of an unreliable con contractor or subcontractor. With this in mind, it's going to be a critical aspect of the work that you are able to establish a professional and authoritative management style. There are certain areas within which you are absolutely going to have to assert yourself in order to set a standard and protect yourself and your company from a potential acrimony or litigation. In this regard, it's critical that you have an ironclad contract with a number of clauses that serve to protect your interests. One is to have an arbitration clause, and we talk about this in another episode, regarding contracts and mutual agreements. Another, in our state anyway, is to be sure to submit a model disclosure notice. We might characterize this as similar to a Miranda warning when someone is arrested, and that it, it advises the client about the options that they have with regard to solving disagreements and resolving any kind of disagreement. Setting prices and minimums is also, I think, important, although it's surprisingly rare to see this kind of text in an agreement or professional contract. With regard to design-build, I think it might be a good idea to consider using this kind of contractual language to set a standard for items that may or may not be clearly approved as addendas or change orders. This might be a minimum labor charge for work to be done or a per square footage charge for some kind of work activity or a charge related to the retail price of a plant material for the installation with a warranty, something like that. In cases, cases where there may not have been a clear understanding, this sets a standard that the client and you will have mutually agreed to that notes that if there is a disagreement about something that's been installed, these are the prices that will be assessed. Another aspect of this is to be able to have a clear definition of materials and how they might be substituted and under what conditions they are approved by the client. You certainly don't want to be in a position where you will have picked up a specimen tree and brought it to the site, unloaded it from the truck, and are ready to plant it in the backyard only to find that the client wants a different tree or that they don't like the look of it. How is this resolved? In a hopefully predefined way. One is that the client is going to just simply rely on you to be a professional and to find the material. They need to accept the fact that you've procured it and brought it onto the site. In another sense, perhaps, they have approved a photograph of the item in advance or absent any approval you have been approving, been approved to bring it to the site and install it because they've had ample time to review the item and review it and comment back, but have chosen not to. Hey, you snooze, you lose. Another critical area where you need to assert polite control is in defining how addendas and extra charges are going to be presented and approved. In my experience, there's actually a legal framework within which a client can be required to pay for an item that they have not approved formally of in writing. This is generally found to be the case if there is a record of having produced and done work as an addenda or an extra item prior that was installed and paid for by the client without a physical record of approval. In a case like this, the client is set up and allowed a sequence of events to occur within which they have paid for the item or items and have not made a formal approval. In any event, it is of course important and professional to always get written approval or at least a digital email approval that you can point to when needed. This usually should be accompanied by a clause in your contract that mutually binds both of the you to quotes and specifications coordinated and approved through email. 
Another area that can create friction is the closure of the project and the remaining payment and punch list remaining for the work. I'm an advocate of producing a clause in your contract that requires a 95% payment before a punch list is completed. You may not have to exercise this kind of clause and a client may be up to date with payments at the time the punch list is created, but many of us have had the experience that clients might hold back, say, a $20,000 payment because they've got one azalea missing from the remaining plant installation to be completed. This is, of course, unreasonable, and as such needs to be defined clearly in your contract as unacceptable. In the event that you need to exercise your authority around this, it's part of your fair and reasonable control of the project, and it sets a requirement that is expected throughout. Having a large balance due at the end of the project is, of course, never a good idea. And so it's a good practice to set up an arrangement by which you are billing progress on the work in advance or in tandem with its completion so that you can be tracking your revenue in accord with the actual work that's being done. Late payments are of course a problem for anyone in business and this can be an issue that arises around your aging. It's important to keep the client apprised of this because there can certainly be potential anticipated problems that can occur when an individual undergoing a construction process is inundated with a lot of information. In this regard, the client can lose track of the invoicing, and this is something that may be a valid response. Either way, the client should be able to easily make payment online, so make sure you have that in your wheelhouse. And to the extent that you set this kind of thing up, you can improve your cash flow overall. Knowing how and when to file a lien can be a critical issue. Usually there is a 60 to 90 day window from the last date of contractor activity as a time frame within which to file your lien. You can gain some time by getting client approval to visit and do a quick punch list though. When filing a lien, the best practice is to have a lien service do this for you. And this is usually a couple hundred dollar fee. What you're doing with a lien is not necessarily forcing payment but you're securing the payment against the future sale of the home, should that ever occur. It also puts a bit of a pink flag on the client's credit overall. Clients, of course, do not like this, but that is the cost of not doing what you said you're going to do by not making a timely payment. Because the lien has a certain time frame around it, you may find that you're having to file it at a time when you're not necessarily yet in an acrimonious relationship with the client. And as such, you may be filing at a time when it might be perceived as argumentative. Regardless, it's a timing thing, and as such, you need to develop a message to the client that says this is a standard procedure. And with that in mind, you're under a deadline within which to file the lien so as to ensure payment in the future. In addition, you're going to want a clause in your contract that requires the client to pay the fees associated with the filing of the lien to the firm that you're using. As such, you will save yourself a couple hundred dollars there. And the client will be under this some additional pressure to follow up on the urgency of making the payment so as to avoid, to avoid that extra expense. There is a bit of control leverage for those of you that provide a warranty for your work. You might want to have text in your agreement that abrogates the warranty should payment not be made within a certain time frame. We've used this to say to a client that, you know, according to our policies, we really can't warranty your material if we don't receive payment by Friday. And as such, this can put some urgency behind making the payment in a fair and reasonable way for the client.
These are just some of the general choke points that can occur during the process of design and construction that you can better control by strategically winning the polite battle for control. I can't overstate the importance of having a good but professionally well-written agreement that defines everything from payments to warranties on the work. Listen to our Season 1 episode on this topic. A good client will see the submittal of a comprehensive agreement as a mark of your professionalism, and this will underpin your respectful authority and reinforce your credibility. If you work toward making your own luck, you may develop a stable of centered and well-meaning clients, but regardless, you are going to need to assert yourself in the polite battle for control. Thanks again for listening.